Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon in English study group where we study the words of the Buddha. We're in volume 12 of this book series titled The Words of the Buddha, and we're going to be exploring chapters 31 through 40 today. We'll have somebody read the chapter, then I'll share teachings on that particular chapter, and then I'll open up to any questions that you guys might have related to that actual chapter. And I'd like to welcome you guys to ask those questions through Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Our moderator, Miranda, will see that and be sure your question gets asked during the class. And then if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions that you like. The way that we start our class is with a meditation. So we just do a brief meditation to get started and I'll guide you guys in that and that'll help to kind of prepare the mind to retain the teachings for a longer period of time. So if you'd like to join for meditation, please go ahead and take a meditation position, which usually is in the seated position for a class like this, but you could also do the lying or the standing position as well. And what you'd like to do is just make your lower body comfortable and place your hands and arms in the lap. Next, just close the eyes and start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Here you're just establishing the breath. I'm gonna do some chanting to ease us into meditation. You're welcome to join along in the chants if you know these. And if not, you can just hang out here with the breath and I'll be back with some more guidance. Nap more 
Here you're just establishing the breath, breathing in gradually through the nose, experiencing the full breath. And then whenever you get to the exhale, breathe out through the nose, experiencing the full exhale. Breathing in and out. Your breath isn't going to necessarily match up to the guidance that I'm providing. I'm just here as guidance. Wherever you get to the next breath, you just breathe in through the nose and exhale through the nose. With the breath well established, start fixating the mind on the sound of the breath or the sensation of air moving into the nose. The breath is the present moment. Fixate the mind on the breath, the present moment. Breathing in and out. With the mind fixated on the breath, wherever you observe that the mind is off the breath, Cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. No need to label the thought. No need to judge it, analyze it, or try to figure out where it's coming from. Just wherever you observe that the mind is off the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. I'm going to be quiet now and let you do this work of focusing on the breath. You have nowhere to go. There's nothing to do. No one needs you right now. This is your time to focus on the breath. Breathing in 
in, out.
We just do a kind of a short meditation on Saturdays just to kind of prepare the mind for the class. I'd like to welcome all of you, whether you're just joining us and the first time that you've joined us or whether you've been joining us regularly, I'd like to welcome all of you and really just turn the class over to, to all of you so that we can read through each of the chapters that you guys have been studying. And then after somebody reads it, then I will share some teachings and then open up to any questions that you guys might have. If you have a question, you can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Or in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions that you like. Is there someone that would like to read chapter 31? I can read chapter 31, sir. I just I can't see it on the screen. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Let me uh, share the screen. There you go. Thank you, sir. Uh, chapter 31, 
those who cause the good teachings to disappear, second discourse. Monks, those monks who explain the meaning and the teachings by means of badly acquired discourses, whose phrasing is an approximation of the correct phrasing, are acting for the harm of many people, for the unhappiness of many people, for the ruin, harm, and suffering of many people, of heavenly beings and human beings. These monks generate much unwholesome karma and cause the good teachings to disappear. All right. Thanks, Miranda. So here, this is kind of coming from the other discourses we studied last week, where a Buddha is going to provide guidance to not change his teachings because he knows he's the discoverer, the declarer, the originator of the path to enlightenment. And if people start changing and modifying his teachings and not speaking his teachings in the true way that he shared them, then it's going to be harmful to others because those people aren't going to be able to get to enlightenment. It's only a Buddhist teachings that's going to lead to enlightenment. Any modifications or changes to a Buddhist teachings isn't going to lead to enlightenment. So this is why it's utterly important that anybody who aspires to get to enlightenment, one, studies with the words of the Buddha, and number two, isn't interested in changing the teachings, but instead they learn, reflect, to independently verify, and then practice. And that's where you see the truth for yourself, that as you cultivate more and more wisdom in the mind, and you train the mind through practice, then you can transform the mind to the enlightened mental state eliminating the pollutions that are hindering the mind from being able to experience the enlightened mental state. So here, this is just a short little snippet, but in the previous discourses, you saw where the Buddha is much more extensive in the way that he explains not to modify his teachings and not to explain teachings that he didn't teach. And you're going to see some more of those discourses today as we go through our teachings. He will explain this for us. Any questions on this particular chapter? Yes, sir. I had I had a bit of a question, more just a clarification. When this is being said that the teachings shouldn't be modified, this, I'm assuming, but wanted to ask, this doesn't include updating language or translations, correct, sir? Right. This is where the Buddha says that, you know, using well-put-down phrases. Right here, he's talking about how the the good teachings disappear but when you look at his discourses on how to sustain the good teachings in the world he talks about using wealth meaning phrases and there's even other discourses not in this book series but there's other discourses where he talks about translation of his teachings into other languages because he understood impermanence he understood he was he was teaching in a language that wasn't permanent and that other people were going to need to move his teachings into another language and he talks about ensuring that there's well put down phrases and understanding of his teachings. So if we are taking the original Pali and now we're updating it to be more penetrating language, then that's an actual enhancement. That's how you sustain the teachings. The reason why we got to where we are in the world today is because of these modifications. We've gotten farther and farther away from understanding his teachings and the translations haven't been very concise and very accurate. So there was going to need to be somebody who comes into the world and then updates what we're currently looking at in terms of translations. The words of the Buddha and what he spoke during his lifetime that leads to enlightenment, that doesn't change because he's explaining the natural laws of existence. What he explained, he explained and it's accurate. 
but the books and the resources and humanity's understanding of these teachings, that's what's degraded over time due to impermanence. And then there was needing to be somebody who comes into the world and then refreshes this so that this person can then share what the Buddha was originally sharing. And this would need to be somebody who attains enlightenment on their own without the help of anyone else because that person isn't going to be influenced or tainted by other perspectives and other views. And then by having those better words and phrases, now the meaning can be much more penetrating than what people have been using over the last you know, 2,000, 2,500 years. Because immediately after the death of the Buddha, during his life and immediately after his death for 500 years, his teachings were strong and vibrant in the world. And then they slowly start declining and degrading. And he talks about this, that this was going to happen. And then now we're in this period of time where his teachings needed to be brought back into the world so that they can shine and more and more people can learn and practice them and actually experience enlightenment. And then from this point forward, the teachings will never degrade ever again because now we have the ability to capture them in books and videos and podcasts and things like this. And then there'll be you know, lots and lots of enlightened beings who will be able to carry the teachings forward and they'll never degrade the way that they did from the original lifetime of the Buddha. But this is what he actually predicted would occur. Yes, I understand. Thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. Uh, it does not appear there are any other questions at this time, sir. All right, so now we're in chapter 32. And by the way, Miranda, if you need any help reading, just let me know. Um, yes, sir. Could I suggest maybe you read the even number chapters and I'll read the odd number chapters? Certainly. So I'll read this one. This is titled, Those Who Sustain the Good Teachings, Second Discourse. Monks, those monks who explain the meaning in the teachings with well-acquired discourses, whose phrasing is not mere approximation, are acting for the welfare of many people, for the peacefulness of many people, for the good, welfare, and peacefulness of many people, of heavenly beings and human beings. These monks generate much merit and sustain the good teachings. So here, once again, the Buddha is explaining to ensure that we use well-developed phrases, not approximations, but well-put-down phrases and explaining his teachings well, because by doing so, then heavenly beings and human beings can get to enlightenment. Those are the two types of beings amongst the five realms of hell, animal, afflicted spirit, human, and heavenly realm. Among these five realms, it's the human realm and the heavenly realm that can actually get to enlightenment, where these other realms, they have to be reborn into a human or heavenly existence in order to get to enlightenment. So anybody who's sharing teachings that are clear, that are precise, that are concise, that have penetrating wisdom to help you clearly see what the path to enlightenment is, the Buddha is saying that this person is acting for the welfare of many people, the peacefulness of many people. Because as these people learn and practice the teachings, then their mind can become more and more and more peaceful. And he says, these people who do this, they're generating much merit. Remember, merit is when you're contributing your time, effort, energy, and resources 
to sustaining the teachings of the Buddha and continuing them into the world. So if you're using your time, effort, energy, or resources contributing to the continuation of these teachings, this is merit. It's helping you to practice generosity, but you're also developing this merit. And this helps to sustain the teachings in the world and ensure that they're available for many generations to come. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? There are no questions at this time, sir. Okay, so let's go to the next one, 33. Uh, ten Roots of Disputes. Venerable Sir, why is it that arguments, conflict, contention, and disputes arise in the community and monks do not reside at ease? Here, Upali, monks explain non-teachings as teachings and teachings as non-teachings. They explain non-discipline as discipline and discipline is non-discipline. They explain what has not been stated and spoken by the Tathagata as having been stated and spoken by him, and what has been stated and spoken by the Tathagata as not having been stated and spoken by him. They explain what has not been practiced by the Tathagata as having been practiced by him, and what has been practiced by the Tathagata as not having been practiced by him. They explain what has not been prescribed by the Tathagata as having been prescribed by him and what has been prescribed by the Tathagata as not having been prescribed by him. This Upali is why arguments, conflict, contention, and disputes arise in the community and monks do not reside at ease. Venerable Sir, how many roots of disputes are there? There are, Upali, 10 roots of disputes. What 10? Here, Monks explain non-teachings as teachings and teachings as non-teachings. They explain non-discipline as discipline and discipline as non-discipline. They explain what has not been stated and spoken by the Tathagata as having been stated and spoken by him and what has been stated and spoken by the Tathagata as not having been stated and spoken by him. They explain what has not been practiced by the Tathagata as having been practiced by him and what has been practiced by the Tathagata as not having been practiced by him. They explain what has not been prescribed by the Tathagata as having been prescribed by him, and what has been prescribed by the Tathagata as ha not having been prescribed by him. These Upali are the 10 roots of disputes. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So when some people think about a community of ordained practitioners, they tend to imagine that it must just be perfect, right? You put on a robe, you cut your off your hair, you live at a monastery and life just is perfect instantly. This isn't how it works, that even amongst the ordained community, there's arguments and conflict and contention and disputes. You know, these people are living amongst each other. They need to learn how to live peacefully with each other. So here the Buddha is being asked by a student, like what leads to arguments and conflict and contention and disputes in, among the community and the monks and the community of also the household practitioners too because whenever he's referring to the community this is everyone and then when he talks about the monks you know they're mainly referring to the ordained practitioners so here if somebody explains non-teachings as teachings then there's going to be people in the audience that know the truth and they might not be enlightened yet and it might produce an argument, right? So if somebody's saying, oh, the Buddha said that it's okay to kill, that we should go out and kill animals and 
do this, that, and the other thing, or, you know, we should steal, or we should have sexual misconduct, or lie, or have substances that cause heedlessness. There's people like, hold on a second, the Buddha never taught that, right? And if those people aren't yet enlightened, it can cause conflict. And if you've been involved in any Facebook groups related to Buddhist teachings, you'll probably see all kinds of arguments and disputes where people are uh, arguing about the teachings. And the Buddha predicted this too. He said at this point in time, people would be arguing and fighting over what his true teachings actually are. And this is the reason why, is because over the course of 2,500 years, there have been people that explain non-teachings as teachings. And now there are certain people who are just believing that. They're not independently verifying the teachings, so they're just believing what is being taught. And because of belief, they don't know what's true or false. And then, just like the Buddha explains here, teachings as non-teachings, non-discipline as discipline, and so forth, essentially explaining things that he didn't teach. One thing I'd like to point out, and that we haven't really talked about too much in this program, is some people refer to the Buddha like a doctor, because a doctor is going to look at certain symptoms, then they're going to diagnose what the problem is, and then they're going to offer some prescription. And here you can see that in the way that the Buddha is talking about prescribing certain guidance in terms of what he taught. Because if you understand craving, anger, and ignorance, the three poisons or the three unwholesome roots, and you understand the 10 fetters, these are the problems. These are what's going to then produce the symptoms. So discontentedness is the symptom. So when you see the anger and frustration, irritation, annoyance, and all these other discontent feelings arise, that's actually the symptom. That's not the actual problem. That's the, the symptom of the problem. The true problem, or the, I should say the, the true cause of it, is the craving, desire, attachment. That's the true problem. And then that's what's causing it, right? So if a person is looking at a mind and sees the anger and frustration and irritation arising in the mind, it's like, okay, well, here's a symptom of something. What's the real problem? Well, the real problem that's causing all of this is craving, desire, attachment. Okay, well, what's the prescription? Oh, the prescription is breathing mindfulness, meditation, and generosity that trains the mind to let go. Oh, okay, well, what's the, the problem here? Oh, this person has anger. Okay, well, we need some loving kindness meditation and practicing loving kindness in daily life. This is the prescription that is prescribed by the Buddha in order to get to a remedy or a solution. So it's really interesting here that that language is being used in terms of a prescription. And you can oftentimes think of it this way in your own practice, that where you see certain symptoms that are happening, where you see jealousy arising in the mind, well, you know it's craving, desire, attachment because that's discontentedness. So you got to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. But then there's also another prescription of sympathetic joy, which is having joy for others' success, even if you didn't contribute to it. So if you start thinking about this in terms of like a medical approach, that there's kind of a diagnosis. Okay, there's jealousy in the mind. We know that that's discontentedness. Craving, desire, attachment is what arises, discontentedness. And here's the solution or the prescription, breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity, and then also arising sympathetic joy. That's what takes care of, of jealousy, for example. And you can get really good at diagnosing 
what the difficulties are in your own mind and then knowing what the prescription is. And you learn this through the Buddhist teachings and you learn about what prescriptions he's prescribing for various situations and various challenges that you experience. So the Buddha's teachings aren't giving you a bunch of rules or commandments or a doctrine, you know, kind of telling you what to do and what not to do. Instead, what he's doing is like a doctor. He's explaining the problems in the unenlightened mind and he's providing you a prescription or a solution to eliminate the pollution of mind. How you choose to interact in the world and what you choose to do for your livelihood or how you handle one situation or another, you'll figure that out. When you don't have pollution in your mind, you'll figure out a wholesome way and a wise way to address that particular situation. But as long as there's pollution in your mind, you'll really struggle to resolve any particular situation. So if you start thinking about it this way, that the Buddha is not giving you rules or commandments or anything like that, He's not trying to dictate how you should behave. Instead, he's showing you what these pollutions are, what these problems are, and then he's giving you a prescription on how to eliminate them. And then when you are eliminating them, you'll see the discontentedness gradually diminish, and then you'll become wiser and wiser, and you'll be able to actually solve any challenges that you face because now the mind isn't polluted anymore. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Uh, there are no questions on this chapter, sir. Okay, so we'll go to the next one, which is 34. So I'll read this one. Disciples who behave towards the teacher with hostility and with friendliness. And how do disciples behave towards the teacher with hostility, not with friendliness? Here, Ananda, compassionate and seeking their welfare, the teacher teaches the teachings to the disciples out of compassion. This is for your welfare. This is for your peacefulness. His disciples do not want to hear or give ear or apply effort with their minds to understand. They stray and turn away from the teacher's teachings. Thus do disciples behave towards the teacher with hostility, not with friendliness. And how do disciples behave towards the teacher with friendliness, not with hostility? Here, Ananda, compassionate in seeking their welfare, the teacher teaches the teachings to the disciples out of compassion. This is for your welfare. This is for your peacefulness. His disciples are interested to hear and give ear and apply effort with their minds to understand. They do not stray and turn away from the teacher's teachings. Thus do disciples behave towards the, the teacher with friendliness, not with hostility. Therefore, Ananda, behave towards me with friendliness, not with hostility. That will lead to your welfare and peacefulness for a long time. I shall not treat you as a potter treats the raw damp clay, repeatedly restraining you. I shall speak to you, Ananda, repeatedly guiding you of what to avoid. I shall speak to you, Ananda. The truly dedicated will stand the test. Okay, let's break this one down. It's a short discourse, but there's a lot going on here. First off, Ananda is one of the Buddha's closest students. He was actually considered to be the Buddha's cousin, kind of like a brother. And he was with the Buddha for the longest period of time, essentially his entire teaching career. And ultimately, he's attributed with providing the memory and the recall to be able to write down the teachings after the death of the Buddha. 
And here, the Buddha is talking about a, how a student can have hostility towards their teacher by essentially not listening to the teachings and not applying effort to learn them and understand them and actually practice them. But notice what the Buddha is sharing here, not only in this first aspect of what a teacher is doing when a student has hostility, but also when they're friendly. The teacher is doing the same thing. The teacher is teaching the teachings to the disciples out of compassion. This is for your welfare. This is for your peacefulness. But the student here is choosing to not hear it, to not give ear, to not apply effort with their minds to understand. They stray and turn away from the teacher's teachings. So in this situation, if someone was repeatedly turning away from the teachings, it wouldn't be uncommon for a teacher to choose to no longer teach that person because a teacher only has a certain amount of capacity to teach a certain number of students. And a teacher would like to help as many people to enlightenment as possible. So if there's a student or multiple students who are repeatedly asking questions and not really dedicated to the learning and the practice and all these kind of things, a teacher should continue to teach them. But there is a certain point where it might make sense to let that student know that since they're not being active in learning and developing their practice, it maybe isn't wise for them to continue to learn. And sometimes what this can do is motivate the student to start learning, that maybe they realize like, wow, I have been pretty complacent. I haven't been really deeply learning these teachings. So that can be a good conversation to have between a teacher and a student. But in most cases, students who are coming to learn with a teacher, they're actively interested in learning. They're not going to be hostile. But there are some situations where students are going to be hostile. They're going to have ego. They're going to have aggression. They're not going to agree with what the teacher is sharing. And this is where a teacher who's well liberated can just remain calm and peaceful and steady and just share the teachings that they know they need to share. But if there's repeated disrespect from a student and they're not correcting their conduct, a teacher is well within their means to you know, talk to that student, try to guide them, and then ultimately, if they're not improving their conduct, perhaps let them know that they aren't the best teacher for them. Because if this student is continuously hostile towards the teacher, then I'm probably not the best teacher for that person because they lack respect to even be able to learn and have friendliness towards the teacher. So here the Buddha is saying to be friendly towards him. He's teaching his student Ananda to be friendly. And how does the Buddha consider that students are friendly toward him? Is that they're interested in hearing his teachings. They, they give ear, they apply effort to actually understand them and they actually practice them. Because anybody who's sharing these teachings, they're not doing it or they shouldn't be doing it for their own benefit, right? There's many things if somebody would like to go out in the world and run a business or you know do things like that they can go do those things usually a person who's set up as a teacher in order to share these teachings they're typically just accepting donations to live kind of a you know just a basic existence they're not bringing in gobs and gobs of money it shouldn't be about the teacher the teacher should be well liberated where what they're doing is they're sharing the teachings out of compassion for their students out of the welfare and peacefulness for their students. So a 
teacher who's sharing these teachings with loving kindness and compassion out of the welfare and peacefulness for their students is just doing it for the benefit of their students, not for their own benefit. Because there's many other things you can do in life to earn a living and make money that would be a lot more income than sharing these teachings. Sharing these teachings isn't going to produce, you know, an extensive amount of money. So somebody who's sharing these teachings has already made a decision that they're not interested in money. They're interested in helping students. They're interested in helping people out of compassion for their welfare and their peacefulness. So if a student is actively learning and interested to learn, then that teacher is able to then teach them. And this is helpful to the student. It's helpful for them to continue to learn and grow. But if a student wasn't interested in doing that, it's like a waste of time for the teacher. So here the Buddha is explaining that by being friendly towards him, this is going to lead to the welfare and peacefulness of the student. Because by learning and practicing what a Buddha has to share or a teacher has to share, it's only helping you. It's not helping the teacher. It's only helping you. Because if the teacher really was interested in living a life of luxury and making money, they would go do something else. They wouldn't do this because this isn't where people come to make you know, a strong, substantial living. They usually are stepping down out of making a you know, established living. They're stepping into just kind of a basic existence in order to be able to share these teachings. But by that time, their mind is well liberated. They're not having all this central desire, so they can usually live on very um, you know, basic amount of uh, necessities that are needed to, to live life. And then the Buddha shares that he's not going to treat his students like a potter would treat raw damp clay, repeatedly restraining them, right? So if a teacher is teaching a student and they're teaching and teaching and teaching, and then they see their students doing something that's unwise, what the Buddha is saying is, I'm not going to restrain you. It's up to you to learn the teachings and restrain yourself. I'm not going to restrain you. I'm just going to teach you. If you make unwise decisions and you're causing harm in the world, that's your own decisions. So the Buddha is not going to constantly be shaping him and restraining him. Instead, what he's saying is, I'm going to repeatedly guide you, right? I'm going to repeatedly guide you of what to avoid. I'm going to speak to you, right? This is how the Buddha is going to help you, is not by pulling your arm and physically restraining you or restraining your conduct, but guide you through wisdom and then when you receive that guidance then you can make your own choices of what to practice and what not to practice and the more you practice what the buddha shares the more liberated the mind's going to become and then he says the truly dedicated will stand the test the dedicated are the people who are diligent and determined to get to enlightenment they're doing it as a goal or an objective or an interest, not with craving and desire and not with complacency, but with dedication. And when you're dedicated and continually learn and practice and develop your practice over a consistent long-term period of time, you'll stand the test because the world is almost testing you every day, right? When you're driving down the street, when you're at work, when you're with your children, when you're with your life partner, there's gonna be things that are occurring that are gonna test your mind. And you're gonna to need to decide what are you gonna do in that situation? And if you're really dedicated and you see that discontentedness arising, you cut it off and let it go. And more and more when you're doing that in a dedicated way, 
eliminating complacency, eventually you'll get to the point where discontentedness no longer arises anymore. You will have stood the test. You would have been dedicated and diligent for a long-term period of time in order to get to enlightenment. You're not going to just stumble into enlightenment. You're not going to mistakenly arrive to enlightenment. There's going to be determined, dedicated, and diligent efforts continuously for a long-term period in order to experience enlightenment. And then having cultivated that wisdom, you will stand the test of the world essentially testing you in situations where your mind might have otherwise gotten angry. You're choosing to be dedicated to the teachings, restraining your own mind, and now no anger arises whatsoever in that situation. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Um, yes, sir. This actually made me think of um, last week we read a discourse where Badali had disagreed with the teaching from the Buddha about eating once a day, and he publicly disagreed with him and then ended up leaving for an extended period of time. Is this an example of hostility towards the teacher and the teachings? That's what the Buddhist teaching here, you know, if a student was overtly aggressive in a class, that's to me hostility. If a student is disagreeing, there's a way to resolve that disagreement. And typically what a student will do is go talk to a teacher privately. Whereas if a teacher's, you know, sharing teachings, we don't know how many were in that discourse of the Buddha teaching, but let's just say he had 10 people there. And during his discourse, one student stood up or raised their hand and said, I disagree with what you're sharing. That's the wrong teaching. You know, you shouldn't share that. Whoa. So that means the other nine people are having to deal with this. And it kind of shakes up the mind perhaps a bit. And it dissuades from and takes attention away from what the true teachings are. If that student had a challenge and they disagreed with what a teacher is sharing, they could easily follow up after the class and say, you know, Gautama Buddha, um, you were sharing to only eat once a day. And I don't feel that this is required in order to attain enlightenment. Can you help me to understand why you teach to eat only once a day? Right. This is like trying to understand rather than, you know, teacher, you're wrong. I'm right. You know, this is the ego coming out in that situation and doing it in front of other people. So just disagreeing with a teacher to me isn't being hostile. And it's a matter of disagreeing politely, kindly, friendly, and respectfully, and doing it at the right time. Because remember, the five factors of well-spoken speech is that speaking at the right time. And when a teacher is teaching and helping 10, 20, 50 students understand the teachings, that's not the right time to say, yeah, I disagree with you. You're not teaching the right stuff. You know, we don't have to do it that way. You know, that's not the right time to say that. And it's not really beneficial to the other people in the class. So uh, there's ways to express your disagreement with your teacher. Do that in a polite, kind, friendly, respectful way at the right time, but doing it in a way to seek clarity and seek understanding. Because a student is going to be unenlightened if they're learning with a teacher. And a teacher may be either pretty close to enlightenment or actually enlightened. So what's causing the mind to be unenlightened is ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. So if a student is hearing a teacher teach and they disagree with something that the teacher is teaching, 
what the students should assume is they should assume that they don't understand, that there's either something the teacher's saying that I'm not understanding and I need clarified, or there's something that my mind is not seeing yet. So rather than just disagree for the sake of disagreeing and being disrespectful in an open class, instead what a student can do is they can go to a teacher, politely ask them questions and say, can you help me understand what it is that you're sharing so that I can see with clarity what it is that you're teaching. Because right now, I don't see and understand why we shouldn't kill people. I don't see why I can't drink alcohol. I don't see why I should not lie. Aren't there white lies that we can tell? So there's ways to ask questions in an open class in a polite, kind, friendly, respectful way and seek clarity and guidance. But if there's going to be you know, a strong contention and disagreement in an open class, that takes away from the focus of the class. And those things should be handled uh, separately and aside. And then if the student is always assuming that they don't know the truth because their mind is unenlightened, they still have a knowing of true reality, this will put the student's mind in the right perspective of saying, please help me see more clearly what it is that you're sharing on this topic rather than i disagree with you this is the wrong teaching right this is a different type of way of having a conversation yes thank you sir mm -hmm. um to follow up with that in that discourse badali eventually came back to gotama buddha and apologized for refusing to practice his teaching and for his behavior and Gautama Buddha agreed that he had been unwise and yet was compassionate and loving towards him and welcomed him back into the Sangha. Is that typically what a teacher would do if a student had been hostile to them and then after a period of time came back, apologized and showed interest in learning and practicing the teachings? Yeah, a teacher who's either close to liberation or is enlightened, and a Buddha is a fully perfectly enlightened being, so they're not going to be upset or angry or hostile at their student for choosing to walk out of their class or you know be disrespectful or whatever. It's not going to hurt the Buddha, right? So a student who does that kind of thing, okay, they've they've had a period of time where they were unskillful and unwise in their conduct, but it doesn't hurt the the buddha it doesn't hurt a perfectly enlightened being so if somebody comes back and says hey i apologize that's an acknowledgement of their difficulty and their problem and then a teacher because that person hasn't done anything to the teacher they've been disrespectful but an enlightened being doesn't look at it as you have disrespected me because there's no me here the personal existence view is gone. You haven't disrespected me. You've been disrespectful in your conduct. And that's unfortunate because that's hindering your enlightenment. And if you come back and you apologize, then that shows that you understand that you need to improve. And now you're seeking that improvement. Whereas if a student did something like that, and then a teacher said, I'm not teaching you any longer, this is because they're holding a grudge. An enlightened being isn't going to have a grudge against their students. An enlightened being knows that it's a real struggle to get to enlightenment. And students are going to have difficulty sometimes. And they're going to 
uh, have challenges and where they have challenges and they come back to their teacher and they apologize, that's an acknowledgement of their challenge. And now they're in a position of seeking guidance of perhaps, you know, I feel like I was disrespectful to you. I apologize for that. Can you give me some guidance of how I can do this better next time? And for me, that's like the perfect scenario because now the, the student recognizes that they were unwise in their conduct and they're seeking guidance for how to do better next time because there shouldn't be an expectation of the teacher that their students are going to be perfect because they're unenlightened. They're not going to be perfect. A perfectly enlightened Buddha is going to be perfect, but unenlightened students are not going to be perfect. So when they have challenges and difficulties, a teacher should be patient. They should be polite. They should be kind, friendly, and respectful to their students because if they're that way with their students, then that's typically what their students will practice back with them. But there's rare occasions where students are brand new and they don't know you and you don't have any gamma with this student yet. And now the student is the first time in your class. They hear you teaching something that they disagree with. Their ego goes up. They get angry and they storm out of the room. Right. And in that situation, it's like, okay, well, you know, they're not going to learn the teachings right now. And that's their choice. But if that person came back and apologized and saw the error of their ways, then a enlightened teacher, particularly a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha, would completely understand that, yeah, this is craving, anger, and ignorance. This is normal for an unenlightened being. And they're not going to take it personally because there's no personal existence view here. And they can just say, okay, I understand. Let me help you. And then let's be sure you get the wisdom so that this doesn't occur again. Yes, that's understood. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. It does not appear that there are any other questions on this chapter, sir. Okay. Chapter 35. Difference between the perfectly enlightened one and a monk liberated by wisdom. The Tathagata monks, the Arahant, the perfectly enlightened one, is the originator of the path unarisen before, the producer of the path unproduced before, the declarer of the path undeclared before. He is the knower of the path, discoverer discoverer of the path, the one skilled in the path. And his disciples now reside practicing that path and become possessed of it afterwards. This monks is the distinction, the disparity, the difference between the Tathagata, the Arahant, the perfectly enlightened one, and a monk liberated by wisdom. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So here the Buddha is explaining the difference between a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha and an enlightened being who gets liberated by wisdom. This, along with other discourses, makes it very clear that the Buddha never said that everybody's a Buddha, right? This is something that you might hear in some communities. They might say, oh, you are a Buddha, or you have Buddha nature, or something like this. But the Buddha never said that. Instead, what he's pointing out here is there is a, a difference between a fully perfectly enlightened one and a person who's liberated as an enlightened being, as an arahant. And the difference is that a Buddha is going to be the discoverer, the declarer, the originator of the path to enlightenment. They're both arahants, 
They're both enlightened beings, but a Buddha has done it by themselves without the guidance of any teachers. And then they're going to declare those teachings for the rest of their life, helping countless people get to enlightenment. And then they're going to leave their teachings in such a condition that countless more people can get to enlightenment. A Buddha's work is extensive. They do an extensive amount of work during their life, guiding countless people to enlightenment. When a Buddha arises in the world, when they first get started, you know, it's going to be kind of not necessarily as apparent, but by the time they die, it's going to be extremely apparent that this person was an actual Buddha because there's going to be countless people who have gotten to liberation and to enlightenment. But those beings who get to enlightenment through a Buddha's teachings is not a Buddha. They are not a Tathagata. They are not a perfectly enlightened one. We call a Buddha a perfectly enlightened one because they have no outside influences. That's why they're perfectly enlightened. They're not influenced by somebody from the outside. And maybe an enlightened being actually, let's just say an enlightened being who studies with a person who's not a Buddha. If someone who studies to get to an enlightenment and they're studying with a person who's not a Buddha, that person might have gotten to enlightenment but maybe 70, 80, 90% of what they know is actually what led to enlightenment. But maybe 10, 20, 30% of what they know didn't really lead to their enlightenment, but it's still kind of lingering. It's kind of like baggage that's still around. So this person has still gotten to enlightenment, which is wonderful, but their teachings aren't going to be as penetrating as a perfectly enlightened one because a perfectly enlightened one only knows the path to enlightenment. That's all they know. Because as a perfectly enlightened one, as a Tathagata, as a Buddha is arising in the world, if they're trying a certain meditation that they think might work and it works, that it's improving the condition of their mind, they know, aha, this is the truth because I discovered this meditation and it's working to improve the condition of my mind. But if they try something else and it's not working, they're going to discard it because they don't have any allegiance to any teacher. They're not influenced by any outside source. So they're going to get rid of that. So by the time a perfectly enlightened one, a Buddha, Tathagata, gets to enlightenment, the only thing that they know is what leads to enlightenment, where other enlightened beings who studied with somebody else, they're going to still have a little bit of extra baggage and influence. Now, a person who studies with a Buddha their enlightenment is going to be a very high degree of enlightenment because a Buddha is going to be able to declare the teachings in a very clear and concise way. And they're going to ensure because their goal is to share these teachings for the rest of their life as a Buddha and ensure that when they die, there's countless enlightened beings that can carry the teachings forward. So a Buddha is going to ensure that as they're guiding their students, that they're very detailed and very precise about their teachings and that people who get to enlightenment by studying with the Buddha, they're going to have a very high degree of enlightenment because they're going to have studied directly with a Buddha. But even that person, they're not considered to be perfectly enlightened, right? They're enlightened, but they're not perfectly enlightened. And the Buddha is making that clear here, that a Buddha is very rare. There's other teachings that where he describes the five treasures and he talks about a Tathagata and a Buddha being very rare in the world. So the last one that the world is currently aware of existed over 2,500 years ago. And here you can see that the Buddha is not saying that you're a Buddha or that you have Buddha nature. Instead, he's saying that the way that you get to enlightenment is liberate the mind through wisdom. That's the way you get to enlightenment is by learning the teachings, by reflecting on them, independently verifying them, and practicing them to cultivate wisdom. 
and you're transforming the mind. That's how you get to enlightenment through the guidance of a Buddhist teachings. And then even you might be learning directly with the Buddha or you might be learning with a teacher, you know, many generations later. Nonetheless, you're not a Buddha. You're not doing it on your own. You're uh, getting to enlightenment and you're liberating the mind by the wisdom of a Buddha. That's the difference. Questions on this chapter? Uh, it doesn't appear that there are any questions at this time, sir. All right. So now we go to chapter 36, which is for me. So I'll go ahead and read this one. This one is titled, The Tathagata Taught Very Few Compared to the Numerous Things He Had Known. On one occasion, the perfectly enlightened one was residing at Kasambi in a Simsapa grove. Then the perfectly enlightened one took up a few Simsapa leaves in his hand and addressed the monks thus. What do you think, monks? Which is more numerous, these few Simsapa leaves that I have taken up in my hand or those in the Simsapa grove overhead? Venerable sir, the Simsapa leaves that the perfectly enlightened one has taken up in his hand are few, but those in the Sinsapa grove overhead are numerous. So too, monks, the things I have directly known but have not taught you are numerous, while the things I have taught you are few. And why, monks, have I not taught you many things? Because they are unbeneficial, irrelevant to the fundamentals of the holy life, and do not lead to fading away of strong feelings, to freedom from strong feelings, to elimination, to peace, to direct knowledge, experience, to enlightenment, to nibbana. Therefore, I have not taught them. And what, monks, have I taught? I have taught, this is discontentedness. I have taught, this is the cause of discontentedness. I have taught, this is the elimination of discontentedness. I have taught, this is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. And why, monks, have I taught this? Because this is beneficial, relevant to the fundamentals of the holy life, and leads to fading away of strong feelings, to freedom from strong feelings, to elimination, to peace, to direct knowledge or experience, to enlightenment, to nibbana. Therefore, I have taught this. So what the Buddha is explaining here is as they're walking through this forest, essentially, with some ordained practitioners, he picks up some leaves in his hands and he says, you know, what is more numerous? All the leaves that are overhead in the trees or the ones that are in my hand? And they're like, oh, all the leaves and all the trees overhead are much more numerous than the few leaves that you've picked up in your hand. And he says, so too is the wisdom, essentially, the knowledge that he has. It's numerous, it's represented by all the leaves overhead. But that wisdom in which he taught is represented only by the few leaves in his hand. So a Buddha, because of being fully perfectly enlightened and getting to enlightenment on their own, they're going to know countless things about the world and have deep wisdom about the world and many different aspects of the world. But that which they choose to teach is very small 
compared to all the wisdom that they understand because their only goal and their only interest is to help people get to enlightenment. So they're only going to teach those things that lead to enlightenment. They don't have time in their life to share all the wisdom of everything they know with everybody that comes in contact with them. Instead, they're only going to focus on those things that lead to enlightenment. And then the Buddha says, well, what is that, right, that leads to enlightenment? So then he points to the Four Noble Truths because that's the beginning of the path. He says, this is what's beneficial. This is what's relevant. So by pointing to Four Noble Truths, this is right view. If you're going to take a hike on a hiking trail, there's usually a posted sign at the beginning of the trail that kind of tells you how long the trail is going to be and what you should encounter along this trail and so forth. Well, right view is like that trail marker at the beginning of a hiking trail. This is helping you to establish what you need to encounter all the rest of the factors along the path. You need to be able to establish right view and break through right view. Without that, you wouldn't be able to develop any other aspect of the path. So it's that trail marker at the beginning of a hiking trail that you need to read, right? You need to read that trail marker and be aware of what you're going to encounter on this path. And this is where you have the breakthrough of understanding what is the problem, what is the cause, what's the elimination, and what's the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. And with this breakthrough, that's where you then establish right view. And now you can actually eliminate discontentedness because you're going to understand what causes it. As long as you don't understand what's causing your discontentedness, if you don't understand what's causing anger, sadness, frustration, and all the other discontent feelings, you'll never be able to eliminate it. But through the Four Noble Truths, you understand with 100% clarity what is causing all discontentedness, pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant. And once you understand what's causing it, then you can implement the prescription to eliminate it. So that's why he's pointing to the Four Noble Truths here, because that's the beginning of the trail. That's the trail marker. That's the thing that you need to know before you get on this trail and take this long journey. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Um, yes, sir. If Gautama Buddha had been asked questions about any of the rest of this knowledge, this wisdom that he had, would he have answered those questions or would those become more untaught teachings? It all depends. You know, if it's going to help an individual, of course, a Buddha is going to share whatever is going to help somebody. But if it's, you know, something that's not going to lead to enlightenment, a Buddha is not necessarily interested in sharing that. So they're going to tend to keep their students focused on the core path. Because what the unenlightened mind oftentimes does is it lacks clarity, it lacks concentration and focus, and it's over here, and it's over there, and it's over there, and it's over here, and it's over here. And what a teacher's doing is kind of working to bring the student's mind to what the clear path is and illuminating that path. So as the student's mind jumps around and asks all these miscellaneous questions, it's not uncommon for someone to say, that's not part of the path to enlightenment, here's what you need to know about that because that way it keeps them focused on the core path. If there's, you know, a student who's just having conversation, you know, about other things, they're maybe further along on the path, perhaps they're asking them, you know, so what did you do when you were in the royal palace, right? This might not have anything to do with the path to enlightenment or not, but just in a casual conversation, 
you might talk about that on a casual conversation. But usually what a Buddha is going to do is they're going to cast that into helping that individual. So they might talk about, well, when I was in the royal palace, there was a lot of central pleasures, there's a lot of central desires. There was all kinds of royal riches and great fabrics and food and all these other things. But I realized that that's not what leads to peacefulness. That was just central desire. And by eliminating that, I was able to develop the mind to the point where now it's peaceful and joyful. So I needed to let go of these central pleasures in the mind and focus on the core path. So they might talk a little bit about that stuff just to kind of give the student a bit of background where, you know, what the Buddha did uh, prior to becoming a Buddha is really irrelevant, but it becomes relevant when you understand that the central pleasures and desires that were going on when he was a member of the royal family didn't actually lead to his enlightenment. And this is where you can see that wealth and money and prestige isn't what leads to permanent joy in the mind. So depending on what the topic is, they may decide to give a little bit and then reframe it into the path to enlightenment. Or there's some things where they might just say that, you know, that's not important. You know, you know that's an undeclared teaching. No need to explore that. Okay. Thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. Uh, it does not appear that there are any more questions at this time. Okay. So now we're at chapter 37. One who points out treasure. Ananda, I shall not treat you as the potter treats the raw, damp clay. Repeatedly restraining you, I shall speak to you, Ananda. Repeatedly guiding you of what to avoid, I shall speak to you, Ananda. The truly dedicated will stand the test. Regard him as one who points out treasure. The wise one who, seeing your faults, guides you of what to avoid. Stay with this sort of teacher. For the one who stays with the teacher of this sort, things get better, not worse. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So during the lifetime of the Buddha, the ordained practitioners were leaving the household life. And essentially, the Buddha was becoming like a stepfather. He was adopting these uh, people, essentially, not legally, of course, but these people were leaving their moms and their dads and their wives and their husbands and their children and they were just kind of coming into this homelessness to learn with this individual because they didn't have well-established educational systems during the lifetime of the buddha so they like today we have universities and all these different educational systems that a person would learn a certain amount of things and then maybe go study to become enlightened and so forth but during the lifetime of the buddha People were joining sometimes as early as, you know, four, five, six, seven years old to come to learn with him. And he was essentially becoming like an adopted father and teaching them every facet of life. You know, how to hold your fork and how to sit properly while you're eating and all these kind of things. So as a teacher shares the teachings that lead to enlightenment, which is the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, all these other things, which includes like meditation training and things like this. Yeah, that's the core path. But then there's going to be these other kind of fine-tuned details that a teacher is going to need to point out to a student along the way in order to help them to ensure they're not causing harm in the world and they can practice in a way that's more and more wholesome, more and more wise, and it produces better and better results for them. And a teacher 
is pointing out treasure. So let me just give a simple example. If I was walking down the street with a friend and a friend just spit in the middle of the street, I would just keep walking. It's, it's a friend, right? But if it's a student and we're walking down the street and they spit into the street, I'm going to probably mention to them like, hey, you know, um, it's probably not so wise that you do that because some people look at that as dirty and disgusting and it's probably going to cause you difficulties if you're around people who consider it that way and you spit into the middle of the street uh, you might spit on their property you might accidentally spit and the wind blows it on somebody this can actually cause you problems in life if you do this and you would kindly guide them to understand that this is pointing out treasure it doesn't show up in a book anywhere it doesn't show up anywhere in a, in a natural discourse but you can understand that this is a wise way to conduct yourself is to not walk down the street and spit. Another example might be if somebody's talking to you and they attribute certain qualities to you and you know that you didn't do those things, it would be wise for you to clarify that. So for example, if somebody says, wow, David, you fully translated all these words from the Pali canon into English. That's amazing that you've done that. I would need to step in and say, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. I actually didn't do all the translations. In fact, my understanding of Pali is very minimal. What I did is I updated the word choices. That's what I did. So bringing this clarity to the situation where this person isn't left confused or misunderstanding, that this is the way to, to create clarity in the world. So in this situation, again, you don't see it in a discourse. You don't see it in a book. This is like going in and doing the fine tuning of the mind and practicing in such a way that is really wise. The way that I think about it is if you took a piece of wood that was a raw piece of wood, like a log, and somebody was going to build a sculpture out of this, when they first start, they might get out a, an axe or a hatchet or a saw or something, and they're chopping off big pieces of wood in order to get down smaller and smaller to what they're actually going to create as a sculpture. And those big pieces of wood are things like right view and right intention and right speech and right action. These are big chunks of wood that are coming off when we're first getting started on this path. But then as we get closer and closer to the ideal shape of the sculpture, you're going to go in not with an axe, not with a saw, right? You're going to go in with a little exacto knife, maybe even a little pin and kind of like draw in on the sculpture some eyelashes if you're sculpting a face, right? Just very delicately sculpting this piece of wood where at the beginning you're chopping off all these big pieces of wood. So those little delicate corrections and those little delicate teachings that are really fine tuning, you don't see them in a discourse. You don't see them in a book. Instead, when you spend time with your teacher and you're around your teacher in person, they can observe things that are going on and then they can help you and they can observe how you interact in the world. And what they're doing is they're pointing out treasure. They're not saying you're wrong or you're a bad person or you've done anything that's necessarily unwholesome. But instead, what they're doing is they're pointing out treasure as a way to help you get more and more enlightened. And if you were hard to correct and you were difficult and you were resentful and reluctant to receive this instruction, then it's going to hinder you from being able to learn that wisdom and get closer to enlightenment. Whereas if you're open-minded and you realize that this teacher doesn't want anything from you whatsoever, they're only here out of compassion to help you, 
for your welfare, for your peacefulness, then you can be easy to learn and then they can point out things so easily to you. So if you're walking down the street and they're like, oh, hey, um, you might think about not spitting. That's kind of not a wise thing to do. And then you were like, what? Why do you talk to me like that? How dare you? Right. If you were resentful like that, oh, boy, it's going to be quite a, a long challenge to help you get to enlightenment. But if you were like, OK, teacher, I didn't think there was anything wrong with spitting. Can you help me understand why I shouldn't spit in the street? Oh, because if the wind blows, you know, it's going to get on somebody or if you get it on somebody's property, you know, they can get angry with you because they're attached to their property and their mind can get angry really easily. And you might find yourself in a fight if this occurs. Ah, I understand now. So this is the treasure that a teacher is pointing out. And if you're easy and open minded, if you're easy to learn these things, again, you might not understand, you might not have the insight that the teacher is sharing with you. But if you regard this teacher as one who is interested in your well-being and is interested in seeing only wholesome things happen for you, then what the Buddha is saying is things get better, not worse. Because as you learn this wisdom and you improve your practice, your life's only going to get better, not worse. So what questions do you guys have on this particular chapter? Uh, it does not appear that there are any questions at this time, sir. All right. So we'll go to the next chapter, which is for me. And I don't know that I can pronounce that word. Do you know that word, Miranda? Right here. Ajhayakam. Okay. I'm going to say A. <laughs> the introduction of A, this, this person. Then some of these beings thought evil things have appeared among beings such as taking what is not given, condemning, lying, punishment, and banishment. We ought to put aside evil and unwholesome things. And they did so. They put aside evil and unwholesome things is the meaning of Brahman, which is the first regular title to be introduced for such people. They made leaf huts in the forest, places, and meditated in them. With the smoking fire gone, with pestle cast aside, gathering alms food for their evening and morning meals, they went away to a village, town, or royal city to seek their food, and then they returned to their leaf huts to meditate. People saw this and noted how they meditated. They meditated is the meaning of jahayaka, which is the second regular title to be introduced. However, some of those beings, not being able to meditate in leaf huts, settled around towns and villages and compiled books. People saw them doing this and not meditating. Now these do not meditate is the meaning of this word A, which is the third regular title to be introduced. At that time, it was regarded as a low designation, but now it is the higher. This then, Vesetaha, is the origin of the class of Brahmins in accordance with the ancient titles that were introduced for them. So here, the Buddha is essentially explaining these three different types of 
people and, and, and beings and how they got their name. So here, when he's talking about Brahmin, the way that they got their name is that they put aside evil and unwholesome things. He's saying that's what the meaning of Brahmin is. A Brahmin is a Hindu priest, but he's saying the origin of that word is that they put aside evil and unwholesome things because they're practicing as well to, in their mind, get closer to God. But in the Buddhist teachings, it's to train the mind to get closer and closer to enlightenment. And in order to do either of those things, you need to put aside evil and unwholesome things. And the Buddha is saying that's where the origin of this word Brahmin comes from. And then he talks about this other type of group of individuals. And he says that the origin of that is they meditate. And he explains how those people come about. And then he talks about this other type of individuals. And he talks about how they got their name, which is now these do not meditate. Right. So there's these Brahmin, there's these beings that meditate and then there's beings that don't meditate. And he says at that time it was regarded as a low designation. So people who didn't meditate was regarded as a low designation. But now it is higher. This then vessel is the origin of the class of Brahmins in accordance with the ancient titles that were introduced for them. Right. So here he's saying, you know, it's ideal to meditate and to put aside evil things. You know, this is what you would like to do as part of your life practice and getting to enlightenment as well. So the Buddha saw certain things that were going on during his life and he would point to those and say, hey, that's the way to enlightenment because the Brahmin, while they maybe weren't practicing the teachings that the Buddha shared that led to enlightenment, they were practicing certain things that were wise and that were wholesome. So the Buddha could point to those and show what those things were. And then this situation here where these individuals were meditating. So the Buddha didn't invent meditation. Meditation was going on before the Buddha's lifetime, but he developed a style of meditation that then he could directly relate to his path to enlightenment and show you exactly how it was eliminating certain unwholesome qualities in order to cultivate the mind and actually move it to enlightenment. So he was able to bring a clarity and a conciseness and a preciseness to the teachings that illuminated the path and made it very clear for others what is the path to enlightenment. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Uh, there are no questions on this chapter, sir. Okay, so chapter 39. Reciting the teachings, the basis of liberation. Again, neither the teacher nor a fellow monk in the position of a teacher teaches the teachings to a monk, nor does he himself teach the teachings to others in detail as he has heard them and learned them. But he recites the teachings in detail as he has heard them and learned them. In whatever way the monk recites the teachings in detail as he has heard them and learned them, in just that way, in relation to the teachings, he experiences inspiration and in meaning and inspiration in the teachings. As he does so, joy arises in him. When he is joyful, joy arises. For one with a joyous mind, the body becomes tranquil. One tranquil in body feels calm. For one feeling calm, mind becomes concentrated. This is the third basis of liberation, by means of which, if a monk resides motivated, dedicated, and determined, his unliberated mind is liberated. His undestroyed taints are completely destroyed, 
and he reaches the as yet unreached, unsurpassed security from bondage, enlightenment. This is taken from the five bases of liberation. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So here, the Buddha is talking about the importance of reciting his teachings because during his lifetime, he only taught orally. Nothing was written down until after his death. So as he was teaching orally, people needed to remember those teachings and then recite them. That was the way that they remembered them and retained them is through chanting them and reciting them and through reciting the teachings as they heard from the Buddha. This is what leads to their joy and leads to their arising of this enlightened mental state. And as the mind becomes more and more enlightened and there's this joy in the mind, the mind is joyous, the body becomes tranquil. So as the mind becomes enlightened, all those little aches and pains and all those you know heaviness on the shoulders and the heaviness in the feet that you might have at the end of a workday, all that's gone. Because when you're carrying around craving, this is a real burden that you're carrying around. But when you get rid of craving out of the mind and the mind is joyous and the mind is calm and the mind is concentrated, the body also feels the same. The body feels tranquil and calm. This is where I say that the mind is the boss and the body is the employee. So whatever's going on with the boss, if the boss is having a good day, the employees are having a good day. If the boss is having a bad day, usually the employees are having a bad day too. But when you get to enlightenment, the boss is always having a good day. There's never a time that the mind is discontent. You're never even in a bad mood when the mind is enlightened. So if the mind is uplifted with joy and it's enlightened, it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, then because the mind is uplifted and joyous, then the body is also tranquil as well. You can still have a little tiny back pain here or there, but nothing that's going to be significant that's going to be debilitating. You can get to a point where the mind is so uplifted that the body just feels very light, feels very tranquil, feels very calm. You're not carrying around this burden of craving anymore, so it doesn't weigh on the mind, so it doesn't weigh on the body. That's what the Buddha is explaining here. And the way that that occurs is through being motivated, dedicated, determined by never giving up and working towards liberation through destroying the taints or the 10 fetters, getting to this unsurpassed security from bondage. Bondage is being trapped in the cycle of rebirth. Like the fetters are this ball and chain around your ankle, bounding you to the cycle of rebirth binding you to this continuous cycle of discontentedness over and over and over again. So when you eliminate those 10 fetters, you're getting this unsurpassed security from bondage. You're no longer bound up. You're no longer a hostage to these 10 fetters where the mind is continually getting discontent. Instead, you've now got this unsurpassed security where the mind is no longer experiencing this being shaken up and this discontentedness. The mind is stable and steady. This is enlightenment. But you would need to remain motivated, dedicated, and determined. And there's going to be periods of times where you have that in quite a bit. And then there are going to be times where it's going to drop off because the mind is not yet practicing the middle way. So where you see the mind is motivated, dedicated, and determined, you would like to apply effort to sustain that. And where you see that the mind is dipping off into this sluggishness or this complacency, 
you're going to have to apply right effort to bring this motivation and this dedication and this determination up in the mind. This is the enlightenment factor of energy where the mind has a willingness to do something. It's motivated. It stays uplifted. If you allow the mind to dip, drip off and kind of doze off into this complacency, then the deeper it gets into complacency, the harder it is going to be to lift it back up to practicing the middle way. So where you see the mind dipping down out of this motivation and dedication and determination, then you would like to lift it back up. If you go through a period of a week or two or three where maybe you're choosing not to read because you're particularly busy at work or maybe if you're in a relationship and your partner is busy and you're taking care of the children or something like this, maybe you know consciously I need to focus for the next week on taking care of the family. I'm not going to be able to read or attend class as much over the next week or two or three or whatever. And that's okay. And that's where you're at. But you know, as soon as you get through that period, boom, right back into the books, right back into attending classes and things like this. If you can at least maintain your meditation practice and all the other steps along the Eightfold Path, like right view, right intention, right speech, right action, and so forth, all the way through to right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. If you can be maintaining that, maybe you're not pursuing more education, but you're at least practicing what you already know. That's still being motivated, dedicated, and determined. Just because you're not reading and just because you're not attending classes doesn't mean you're not motivated, dedicated, and determined. You might be taking what you've already learned putting that into practice. And then as you're practicing that, then once you get all of that digested and it's fully into your life practice, now it might be time to come back and learn some more and some more classes and some more reading. So you might jostle between these things, but what you're not interested in doing is not reading, not going to classes, not meditating, not applying effort to practice right intention, right speech, right action. When you start doing those kind of things, that's where the mind is utterly complacent. You're not even arising the energy to practice right speech, for example. You just don't care how you talk to people. This is not going to lead to your peacefulness and your welfare. Instead, it's going to lead to your detriment and your problems. So motivation, dedication, and determination is what you're doing on a daily basis to practice the teachings. So being active in training the mind and moving the mind towards enlightenment doesn't necessarily mean that you're always going to be reading or you're always going to be attending classes. Those things are impermanent too, but you'll need those at different times. And then there'll be times where you need to step away and digest what you've already learned and put that into practice. And that can be really helpful for you. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter? Uh, it does not appear that there are any questions on this chapter, sir. All right. So we'll go to chapter 40, which is the last chapter for our class today. This chapter is a bit different than what you've seen throughout the book series. This is research on discovering misunderstandings that exist in the Buddhist community about different topics. And there's a whole series of them here at the end of this book. This one is titled Misunderstandings Regarding the Benefits of Creating Buddha Images. So these aren't the words of the Buddha here. These are instead research that was done in order to help us understand that creating Buddha images is not what the Buddha taught. So I'll read this for you guys so you can understand it. The benefits of creating Buddha images can be found in 
this particular section of a, a publication, which shares the creation of the Buddha image from sandalwood by King Pasanada of Kosala, the once upon a time that once upon a time the perfectly enlightened one journeyed from Savati to a distant place to share the teachings. At that time, King Pasanada of Kosala, surrounded by a great number of people, went to the great monastery in Jedavatna. This is the primary place where the Buddha used to teach. Not seeing the perfectly enlightened one, the king was filled with disappointment in saying, this world without the perfectly enlightened one is without a refuge and without a protector. Once he returned home, he thought of making an image of the Buddha. When the Buddha returned to Jedavana, having worshipped the master, the king asked the Buddha if he will allow an image of himself to be made, and the Buddha gave permission to the king. By the way, this isn't true. This is just a story that's in a certain publication. When the Buddha image was completed, he invited the Buddha to see the image and asked, that would, asked what would be the benefits of creating a Buddha image. The Buddha then told the benefits that whoever creates a Buddha image, whether a man or a woman, whether made of clay or of rocks, made of metal or copper, made of wood or zinc, made of precious stone or silver or gold, they produce great merit. As long as there is a Buddha image, this world will not be empty. The Buddha image helps prolong the teachings and practices. Those who built Buddha image will encounter happiness. All their wishes will be granted. The Buddha, while still unawakened, not yet fully enlightened, repaired the broken finger of a Buddha image. The benefits he gained were achieving a heavenly rebirth and passing away from the heavenly realm, entered into a powerful kingship. He was able to defeat an army merely by lifting and bending his finger. Then the Buddha narrated an incident from one of his previous lives as King Vatanguli, who was able to defeat an army merely by lifting and bending his finger. Out of 50 tales in the publication is the 20th Jataka. However, the period, the composer, and the place of the composition is still unclear. Oh, okay, so this is the research that was done around this. However, the period and composer of the place of the composition is still unclear. Some of the accepted evidence has now become uncertain because new contradicted evidence has been found. The accepted opinion is composed by H.R.H. Prince, uh, this prince, this long name, I think this is a Thai name, in the preface of the first publication. So this book consists of 50 ancient tales told in Thailand. So this part that I just read, which where it depicts the Buddha giving this approval to create images of him, what this research is showing is that that story, that folk tale, is among 50 ancient tales that are told in Thailand. A monk from Chiang Mai, which is where I live, 
compiled and composed the tales in this language from Sri Lanka in around 1457 to 1657. Now, I don't know 100%. I think this is our current year. Ties go by a different year. So this is CE, which would mean the, you know, it would be, this would be about 500 years ago that these stories were compiled, which was the period when monks in this country studied from Sri Lanka and were fluent in the Sri Lankan language. They published books in the Sri Lankan language in their hometown by explaining and elaborating the teachings, like the monks in Sri Lanka. Originally, the book that this was composed in comprised of 50 palm leaf manuscripts tied together. Today can only be seen in Thailand, Lump Prabang, which is in Laos, in Cambodia. Other than that, they cannot be found. It has been told that the book was once found in Burma, which is now Miramar. They called it Chiang Mai Panasa. However, one of the kings in Burma said that the book is counterfeited, words of the Buddha, and ordered them to be burned. Thus, these stories can no longer be found in Burma. The tales in this book are well known in Thailand, for example, this particular tale, and then it just kind of goes on from there. So right now we have Buddha images all throughout the world. You know, they're made of stone, of clay, of precious stones, of all different kinds of metals and things like this. And what this particular chapter is helping you to see is that the Buddha never declared that we should create images of him. Instead, if you look at what he taught, he didn't teach to worship any statues. He taught to not practice rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. And he taught that these things don't lead to enlightenment. So there's no need to rush out and buy a Buddha statue and feel that that's somehow going to help you get to enlightenment. It doesn't mean that you can't have a Buddha statue in your home, but understand that that Buddha statue by itself isn't what's going to produce enlightenment. It's learning, reflecting, and practicing that's going to produce enlightenment. Some people like to have artwork of the Buddha around as a reminder for them to practice right speech or to practice right action and things like this and all the other teachings. And if that's what you're using it for, wonderful. But if you're feeding the Buddha statue, if you're worshiping it, if you think that the spirit of the Buddha is in that statue and you're praying to the statue and asking the Buddha to help you in this life, this is part of the delusion or ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. And the mind is not even going to be able to get to the first stage of enlightenment in that way because you need to eliminate the first three fetters. The second fetter is called wrong behaviors and observances. These wrong behaviors and observances deal with rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. As long as the mind thinks that this statue has the spirit of the Buddha and you can feed it and you can pray to it and you can worship it and it's going to benefit you, then the mind is still unknowing of true reality. It's still practicing wrong behavior and observances that you don't yet understand that it's the cultivation of wisdom that's going to lead to enlightenment. That's what's going to eradicate the ignorance or the unknowing of true reality, not worship of a statue. So this here is helping you to see where the creation of Buddha images 
kind of comes from, but it actually dates, it predates this story. From what I understand from archaeologists and anthropologists is that people started making statues of the Buddha about two or three hundred years after his death. And they didn't even understand what he looked like because those people who lived during that lifetime, two or three hundred years after his death, they didn't know what he looked like. So they just casted statues based on what they thought he looked like. And this is where you see statues that are from China, they look very Chinese, or from Japan, look very Japanese, or if they're from Thailand, then some people might say they look like they're Thai. So this chapter is here to help you understand that there is this misunderstanding in the world, and you shouldn't feel like you need to, you know, collect up all these images of the Buddha, because that's not what's going to lead to your enlightenment. But that doesn't mean you can't go out and purchase a statue, but you just need to understand with clarity and wisdom that that statue isn't going to give you anything in terms of enlightenment. It might remind you to practice the teachings. It might be inspirational. It might help you to cultivate appreciation and gratitude and respect and maybe humbleness. That's what's actually leading to your enlightenment is the cultivation of the appreciation, the gratitude, the respect, the humbleness, the reminder to practice the right view, right intention, right speech, and so forth and so on. That's what's leading to your enlightenment, not the actual statue itself. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Uh, it does not appear that there are any other questions at this time, sir. Okay. So that was a kind of a different chapter than you know what we're used to, but you guys can read that on your own and you can see what I wrote because I broke down in the explanation to help you see how the Buddhist teachings aren't prescribing for people to go purchase Buddha statues. But again, if that's what you choose to do, that's your choice, but just understand with clarity what you're actually experiencing there. So thank you all for joining for today's class and I appreciate that you're choosing to learn and practice these teachings. And next week, we're gonna be in the next 10 chapters. So we're gonna be in chapter 41 through chapter 50, which will be the next 10 chapters in the same book, volume 12. And then tomorrow in our group learning program, we're gonna be starting our retreat series where there's eight classes that I taught in the USA during the summer's retreat that are unique to that retreat. I haven't written about them. I haven't taught them anywhere else. There were multiple classes that I taught in that retreat, but most of those classes in terms of the first half of the retreat are things that I've already taught on online classes before. But now there's an eight class series that I haven't taught anywhere other than that retreat. So this first class tomorrow is titled Practicing in a World of the Unknowing, Relationships with Non-Practitioners. This is going to help you with your personal and professional relationships where people aren't practicing these teachings. They're going to potentially be blaming you for things or they're going to blame you for their anger and they might be practicing craving desire attachment and thinking that that's what love is and they might be doing some other things that your mind might experience problems and, and you might be discontent because of these things so i'm going to help you to understand how to practice in a world where the vast majority of the world doesn't understand things like the four noble truths and that each person is causing their own discontentedness. Because if someone else is blaming you for their anger, and you know with 100% certainty that you didn't cause their anger, 
what do you do in that situation? So we're going to be discussing these type of things and others. So you're welcome to attend that class and or listen to the replay in either Facebook, YouTube, or through the podcast. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation together. This is where we come together to encourage, support, and motivate each other in our meditation practice. So I'll see you guys in a future class. Have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. Thank you so much. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.